If you will, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. As we continue working our way through the letter of 1 John, written by the Apostle John in the time of about 90-95 AD, John is an elderly man at this point. Most believe that he has just finished and concluded the book of Revelation. He sees the contour and the uh, horizon uh, and the difficulties that the church is going through at that time. He sees the number of people leaving and following another Jesus, thinking that these in this newly found cult had answers that Christianity could not provide them. And as John sees this exodus leaving these individuals who are uh, who had associated with the body of Christ, he sees them leaving, and now he is addressing those who remain. And he's assuring them that, listen, you have the words of eternal life in Christ Jesus. There isn't a new revelation that these individuals have that will enlighten you any further than Christ already has. And as John wrote the Gospel of John, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he is now writing this first letter at this stage in his life that you may know that you have eternal life. And we began this series together through this letter for the specific purpose of addressing the national crisis in Christianity that we find in America today, and that is the number of individuals who call themselves a Christian but have no desire for the things of God. From the survey that they had taken to identify this reality, they indicated very clearly that they really didn't have a desire to attend a church, or to be in fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They didn't really have a desire to read God's Word or to pray, and yet they fully felt convinced that they had eternal life in Christ Jesus. John would challenge those individuals and has done so in this letter. And stated very clearly for us within the first four chapters of this brief, small letter, that one who is truly born again, one who has experienced that new birth and has, be, uh, has received the atonement and the atoning work of Jesus Christ and has been regenerated and has now become a new creation in Jesus Christ, within that new creation there shall be three desires. Number one, the desire to live like Jesus, to pursue the same righteousness and holiness that Jesus uh, demonstrated and exampled for us in his years here on this earth. As Peter wrote, be holy for God is holy. John says, you will love like Jesus loved. Number two, He made it abundantly clear that those who are truly born again will have a deep abiding love for God and for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And thirdly, he said that one who is truly born again 
will hold to a right understanding of who God is. They will think like Jesus, adopting and holding to a true understanding of biblical theology. And as John has made that point clear through the last four chapters to this morning, we begin chapter 5, where he introduces us to a phrase that we find roughly 20 times within the New Testament. It's a phrase that we could run over very quickly if we weren't aware of the ramifications and the implications of this phrase that we find here in the Bible. It was a phrase that was used by the apostles to encourage the recipients of their letters to allow them to know and to understand who they truly are in Jesus Christ. It was the cornerstone of the foundational truth and understanding of their identity in Jesus Christ. But this phrase was embraced by those who read it in such a dynamic way that today, unfortunately, because of our manner of perspective, we have lost the understanding of what this phrase actually meant. And it is that understanding that I hope to reintroduce to you this morning. Again, it's a phrase that I know that you have read and have seen within the New Testament And the word that is used, nikau in the Greek, which is translated prevail, conquer, or overcome. And the phrase that we look for in the text is found in verses 4 and 5 of this morning's portion of this letter that we will look at. It is John assuring us that we have overcome the world. Nikau ton kosmon. In the Greek, it means that you have prevailed, you have conquered, you have overcome. And we are going to rediscover this morning what that meant for that first century Christian 2,000 years ago because it means the same for you and I today. And again, as I said, It is the cornerstone of our true understanding of our identity in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to overcome the world? He's talking about the world system. He's talking about the effects and the consequences of the fall that have tainted and stained our world all around us. As we see a world in decay due to sin and death, and all of the consequences that they bring hand in hand to us, sorrow and sadness and loneliness and emptiness, Jesus says, you have overcome the world. This overcoming of the world allows us to pass from the darkness, the blindness that we were once in to the light of the true understanding of this world, of ourselves, and of God. This overcoming of the world allows us to pass from death to life. As we may 
die here on this earth, as Jesus says, we shall live for all eternity. This overcoming of the world allows us to become a new creation, allowing for the reconciliation and the reconstruction to take place within our lives, bringing us back from the condition of the fall back into the image of Jesus Christ, His original intent for us before Adam and Eve decided in their ultimate act of rebellion and sin to disobey God there in the garden. God is now bringing us back. Overcoming the world means that we can forgive because we truly understand what it means to be forgiven. Overcoming the world allows us to love those who hate us because we understand what it means to be truly loved by God. Overcoming the world allows us to experience a joy that the world cannot understand because it's not based on our circumstances and it's so vastly superior to any happiness that individuals may have the right to pursue here on this earth. Overcoming the world means that we are given a peace that surpasses all understanding. That when the circumstances of life try to weather against us and try to beat us down, we can stand strong because God has given us a peace that rests in Christ, a peace that the world cannot even understand or, or uh, contemplate or even comprehend. Allowing us to overcome the world has given us a hope that can never be dashed. It's a hope that allows for the chasm of despair and depression and hopelessness to be filled once and forever, not to the point of just fully filled, but overflowing to the point where our hope cannot be dashed by the circumstances of life. Overcoming the world means that we can have faith in something greater than ourselves, allowing ourselves to experience and to trust God in a manner that others cannot experience for themselves who are apart from Him. That when I go through the circumstances, trials, troubles, and tribulations of this world, I know that I am not alone. That He will never leave me nor forsake me at any time. Overcoming the world means I have a strength that is beyond my own. And that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what it means. Nakao tan kazman. To overcome the world in Jesus Christ. And as John now begins to conclude this incredible letter to us, he begins with a complex sentence in the original language in verse 1. Again, his intent is found in verse 13. If you quickly look there with me, in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God a follow-up to his first letter, a follow-up to the gospel. He wants you to know for sure that you have eternal life. And that word know in the Greek contains the understanding of true confidence that is incapable of being shaken 
by anything intellectual or experienced here in this world, that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible tells us clearly and warns us desperately that many will stand before God at that last day. And they will say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not done all of these things in your name? And if I may, let me modernize the understanding of these words. Have I not gone to church? Have I not given to the church? Have I not served in some capacity? Have I not done these things? And Jesus will turn to them at that moment in one of the most, I believe, horrific statements of all the Bible. And He will say to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You never came to me and repented of your sin and fully, by faith, believed and trusted on me. One way or another, you deceived yourself in believing that you were truly of me when in actuality you were far from me. As Jesus experienced in His first coming, oh, their lips, they draw close to me, but their hearts, they are so far from me. And as a result, these individuals will stand before the Lord and at that moment, thinking their entire lives that they were good with God, only to discover that Jesus never knew them. And he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, would that be terrifying or what? That's the last thing I want anyone to ever experience who attends this church. But let's remember that the survey taken that awoken us to the reality of this incredible deficit in the body of Christ stated very clearly that out of the individuals that they surveyed, they believed that one out of four were truly saved in Christ by the answers that they gave. I think that's interesting because the sower of the seed parable tells us that one out of four of the seeds went to full fruition. Not everyone who sits in church is a Christian. Not Just like standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. We need to examine our hearts. We need to be honest with ourselves. This is the most important question of your life right here. Nothing compares to it. Nothing. And that's why we began this. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that you are, if you are brought to the discovery and the awareness that you do not have eternal life, we give you the opportunity to receive that eternal life. You're still going to be better off than you were before. Because you'll have that opportunity given to you. And then you can know for sure. And as we conclude and as he wraps up his thinking, he gives us a very complex section. And notice how he uses the, uh, the um, grammar here. It's a, it's a one sentence that has been divided into several sentences because the original language doesn't carry with it punctuation. But notice the synergy of these verses. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who has 
place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And by him using this term, he's saying the authentic Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus that was proclaimed by the apostles after his ascension. The theological understanding of this Jesus in whom the apostles, the disciples, walked with for those three years. This is the Jesus that you have embraced because of the gospel that we brought to you on your behalf. And if you truly believe in him, you have eternal life. That's where it all starts. It starts with him. A true understanding of Jesus. Today there are many who go through this life having a misunderstanding of Jesus and yet still call him Jesus. For example, I can meet a Jehovah's Witness and I could ask them the question, do you believe in Jesus and what are they going to tell me? Yes, I believe in Jesus, but the Jesus they believe in is completely different than the Jesus of the scriptures. I could go to a Mormon and I could ask them the exact same question. And again, they would tell me with a a wholehearted affirmative, affirmative, yes, I believe in Jesus, knowing full well that they have a different Jesus than I hold to. That's what they are experiencing there at this time. As these individuals have broken away and it became the foundation of Gnosticism at that time, and they were drawing people away, they had a different Jesus that was incapable of saving them. A right theological understanding is necessary for the obtaining of salvation. Now, does that knowledge of God increase as you grow as a Christian? Of course. But a basic understanding of who Jesus is is necessary to understand his ability to grant salvation to those who believe in him. As John then goes on in verse 1, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. If you say that you love God, who you have not seen, then you will also love those who you do see who claim to be His children. They go hand in hand. As John says, how is it that you can say that you love God whom you have not seen when you can't love your brothers and sisters in whom you have? A byproduct, a fruit of, a, a um, assurance of, a result of. My faith in Jesus Christ will produce in my heart a love for the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters, and not just the brothers and sisters here at this church. The body of Christ is immense. It spreads throughout the entire world. And it doesn't necessarily indicate by the name that is on the church doors who my brother and sisters actually are. It is those who have truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ who have been born again. It is those that God is saying, I will love if I truly love the Father. Verse 2, which is continuous in the Greek, but separated now by the period. By this we know that we love the children of God. Good. How do I know for sure that I love the children of God? When we love God and obey His commandments. And what are those commandments? 
Jesus Christ made it clear that the law was being replaced by what we call the royal law of love, as James calls it. That the Ten Commandments were now going to be superseded by two of the greatest commandments. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind and strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the heart of Christianity. To love God in the manner in which we are called to love Him. And that love in the Greek is the word agape, which we explored in our past sessions together. It means unconditionally. Meaning that my love for God cannot be dovetailed or uh, hitched to my circumstances in life. Oh, it's easy to say that I love God when I'm being blessed fluently, isn't it? Every day you go to the mail and there's just another check waiting there for you. And it says, enjoy yourself. Spend liberally. You've been praying for that Corvette. Get it. And that way you can get to church even faster on Sunday mornings. (laughs) And you go to the doctor and you get a perfect bill of health. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. You are perfect. In fact, can I just use you as an example of perfect health? And all your relationships in life are absolutely perfect. For they all agree that you are right and they are wrong. Everything's great. It's easy to say, oh, God must love me in those circumstances. But when difficulties come, and your bills are this much, and your bank account is this much, or your health is failing, as each year passes, something else breaks and the warranty has expired, or the relationships you're having, even with those who you're supposed to be the closest to are rocky and difficult. God says, will you still love me? When you don't get that which you want, do you still love him? When circumstances don't turn out the way you expected them to, will you still love him? That's the unconditional nature of the love that we need to have for God. And then loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in that same unconditional, sacrificial manner that Jesus Christ loved us, that all the world may know that we are truly followers of Christ by the love that we demonstrate towards one another. As we continue on as a church, as we are now in our 20th year, and many of you have been here for many, many years, It's easy to grow frustrated with your brothers and sisters in Christ at times. Well, they're just not doing as much as I am. And uh, that's just ridiculous. I'm older now and the young people should be doing their, their part. Or the young people saying, listen, I'm not getting what I want out of these people. But the love that God is saying for us supersedes all of that. We need to love each other as Christ loved the church. We need to lay ourselves down as living sacrifices. We need to forgive. We need to show grace as grace has been shown to us. We need to show love and compassion as love and compassion has been shown unto us. Would you not agree? We're a family. 
And we're not going to always get along, right? Families never always get along. But we love each other. And regardless, you know that you can count on not only myself and Pastor Joe and Chris, but the brothers and sisters that you're sitting next to in this church in a time of need. That's the love that God wants us to have for one another. If you have any kind of resentment or bitterness in your heart, may I ask you to let it go today? Because God can't bless that. He can't work in that arena. God asks us to forgive even when that person is completely undeserving of the forgiveness that we are going to give them. He asks us to forgive on the basis of the fact that we have been forgiven by him. But Lord, you don't know what they've done to me, but I know what you've done to me, the Lord says. I know your sin, and I went to the cross for it, and I forgave it because I loved you. Now, is it too much for me to ask for you to love your brothers and sisters who haven't done nearly the same detrimental uh, defilement as you have towards me? Right? Can anybody say that they haven't sinned against God in a manner that we are so thankful that it is not currently displayed for us behind us here on this church wall? That's the love that we need to have for one another going forward. It's not easy. It can be quite difficult at times. But that's what he is asking us to do here. And as a result, we will truly know that we are in him and have obtained eternal life. Verse 3. For this is the love of God, he says, that we keep his commandments. But not only keep them, look at this phrase that he now adds to our discussion, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not oppressive. We do because we love God, and so therefore we want to do for him. If God is asking me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I'm going to do so because he first loved me. That's what he is saying here. They are not burdensome. I desire to do them. This doesn't mean that they're not going to be difficult at times. They are. But we should want to do these things to please our Heavenly Father. It's just like a mom with an infant. You don't really have to tell her to take good care of that infant. It's naturally ingrained in her to do everything she can to make sure that that infant is safe and healthy. That's what God wants from us today. These things should not be a burden to us. They should be a joy to us. We should love one another because God has loved us and this is simply what he has asked us to do. And then as we move into verse 4 that that entails this incredible phrase that we discussed earlier, I bring it to your attention because I want you to know of its implications to us today. Verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In the book of Revelation, this word, this phrase is used 17 times. 
it is at a point where the Christian church is at its lowest. The persecution is so severe against her at this time. From their perspective in life, they don't know how they are going to survive. We are operating and living within our Christianity from a place of prosperity and position. And so our view, our perspective is skewed. Especially in this nation that has adopted Christianity for so long as the religion, the faith of our nation. It's a part of our identity. Of course, we see that changing. But for most in the world, Christianity is still remains in that persecuted state. And so their perspective is much different than ours. They see the oppression of a, a tyrannical government upon them, which we don't experience here in this nation. We sit in this beautiful air-conditioned building here on Sunday mornings when our brothers and sisters around the world, some are gathered in fields, some are gathered in caves, some are gathered in underground hiding places in fear of persecution as they come and worship the same Lord that we have. And they have all the same blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. But from their perspective, they are a complete minority. From their perspective, in their culture, they are insignificant to the fabric of their society. Many have lost possessions, their freedom, and some even their life simply due to their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet to hear these words would be extraordinary for them to read and to understand. For Nikao Tan, it almost sounds Japanese, Cosman uh, was a phrase that was used by the Roman Empire. At this time, the Roman Empire is at their zenith. In fact, some now believe that they are in a state of gradual erosion and decay at this time. But they have conquered most of the world. And with conquering the world and taking as much territory as they had, an arrogance and a pride arose within them. And they felt that they were invincible. And the phrase that they would use would be, we will overcome the world. We will, Nico Tao, Cosman, we will overcome the world. We will prevail. We will conquer. We will overcome the world. It's, it was in the future tense. But now John is writing this to believers and using it in the exact same manner in which it was used by the Roman Empire with one significant difference. It is found in verse 4. It is the Greek word has, holding within it the past tense. For everyone who has been born again of God overcomes the world. Past tense. If you've been born of Jesus Christ, you have prevailed, conquered, overcome the world. Not in the manner in which Rome saw it but in the manner in which Christ saw it. 
that the kingdom of God was now inaugurated through the crucifixion and the resurrection. And now the herald was going out. The gospel was going forward saying that the king who has now paid the penalty for the fallen world will one day return for the world and we need to be about his business in the interim. You have overcome the world. Past tense. As the Romans were still waiting for that experience, Jesus says, we have already done so. As one wrote about it, he says, defeat comes when uh, the stronger arrives and lays siege and then gains the victory. We have overcome because Jesus Christ has overcome. Let me give you some verses that you can take with you to help you understand what we are saying. In John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. And Jesus hasn't even died yet, but it was already set in motion. But then when we come to the book of Revelation, when the church was in a state of persecution as John was writing this, and yet the great tribulation period is still yet coming, when those who believe who are here will not experience the tyrannical oppression of a mere government, but the tyrannical oppression of the Antichrist himself. Jesus writing to the churches in Revelation 3.21, he says, the one who conquers, and this is the word overcome, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered, past tense, and sat down with my father on his throne. Or Revelation 5.5, when the lamb goes to take the scroll from the father's hands, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for John was weeping in heaven, seeing that no one was worthy to go and to take the scroll from the Father's hand there in the throne room of heaven. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, overcome, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals and allow righteously the judgment of the earth to begin. And in 17.14, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, overcome them. For He is the Lord of the lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. We have overcome the world because Christ has overcome the world. And we who are in Christ now enjoy that new position that He has provided for us. That's what John is saying. The same John that wrote 1 John wrote Revelation. It was this overcoming. And what overcome? Our faith. They can take everything from us, can they not? All our material possessions, our life even, but yet they cannot take our faith in Christ unless we give it to them. And he goes on then to conclude in verse 5. 
I'm sorry, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's where our victory comes from because he was victorious. For those who were suffering at that time, losing their life, losing their wealth, losing their identity, as many of them were ex, uh, expelled from their land. They just remembered that from their perspective, Jesus hanging on the cross appeared to be a complete and utter failure. But in actuality, it was a victory. And now these Christians are holding to this same idea as they go through what they go through. It's not only John who uses this language. If you quickly turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Notice again how this language is used by Paul. Starting in verse 31 of chapter 8, listen to this. As he has given us the most theologically rich understanding of God's grace, justification, and atonement, listen to what he says now after everything that we have learned writing to the Christians who are in Rome themselves. He then concludes by saying, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we, he not also with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are all being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered now notice with me in verse 37 no notice that's their perception that's their position a persecuted christian under the oppression of the roman empire who claim and believe that they can conquer all of the known world. Their pride and their arrogance has only been bolstered by their success. And then notice what Paul writes here in verse 37. No, he says, in all these things we are more than what? Conquerors, overcomers. Same word here, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see it now? This was meant to encourage them, to strengthen them, as it is for you and I today. Let us remember that first and foremost, we are Christians in Christ, then Americans and so forth. We belong to the kingdom of God, first and foremost. 
And though we love our nation and we pray for our nation and we interact on our nation's uh, behalf in the sense of serving our nation and, and trying to continue to see righteousness prevail against evil, as Jesus says, you know, do not conquer evil with evil, but conquer evil with good. Overcome. The same word is used there, I should say, by Paul. And now you and I, we need to understand that we are not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. And we have overcome. And as a result, we understand that the effects of this world upon our life are temporal at best. And lastly, I read these words to you from John himself in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. And John wrote, and he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As John says, and I'll close with these words if I may. He says in verse 4 of our text, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, help us to remember who we are. 